This podcast is sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Find out more at the conclusion of today's conversation. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. If we want to say that man's will is free, there are really there's really a two-sided question that we should answer, which is negatively free from what, and then positively free for what. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dr. James Dolezal. James, how are you today? Jonathan, I'm doing well. It's good to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, I am too. It's always good to get a chance to just discuss one issue or one book between the two of us. And that's the plan today. We don't have a guest on this episode, but we are going to be discussing, I think, a subject that many people have questions about and many maybe even have misconceptions about. And that is the subject of free will. And we're going to use as a jumping off point the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter nine, which is entitled Of Free Will. And so, James, I want to start with this. One of the popular conceptions of Calvinism or of Reformed theology, or however you want to uh, label it, is that Calvinists don't believe in free will. And sometimes people will even say, I've met many people who say this, I'm not a Calvinist. I believe in free will. So let's just start with a very basic question. James, you're a Calvinist. Do you believe in free will? I am James. I'm a Calvinist, and I do believe in free will. There. So now we're all out in the open about that. But sometimes, don't you find that there are Calvinists, even or professing Calvinists, who say, "I'm a Calvinist. I don't believe in free will." Do you know what I mean? Like there yeah, are some people who think, absolutely, no, it goes both ways. Yep. That that's to be reformed. That's what you're signing up for is a denial of free will. And then we sometimes forget that that uh, in the family of confessions, the Westminster Confession, the Savoy Declaration, the Second London Confession. Uh, each one in chapter nine of free will. And then the first article opens up and, you know, they shock you, I suppose, by not denying it, but in fact, by affirming free will. And yet I think what we should say is that the confession is very careful in qualifying what it means by free will. And I don't think it qualifies it to death. You know what I mean? It doesn't qualify it away, but nevertheless, it does, it does add certain boundaries on and specifications on what we mean when we say that man hat is endowed with free will. And it also, and we could talk about this in a second as well. It also puts some boundaries on what we talk about when we talk about the, the loss of man's free will, precisely in what respect is the freedom of his will lost. Um, and so what I sometimes say to my students is, um, if they'll say, you know, you're, you're a Calvinist, you don't believe in free will. What I'll say is, I absolutely believe in free will. I just don't believe in absolute free will. Um, I, I'm not sure if that distinction is helpful, but I, I, I'd be willing to defend it somehow. Well, no. And I think let's get into that in just a minute. But I, I, I think some kind of qualification along those lines is necessary because, of course, one of the problems is, well, as you mentioned, all of these important confessional statements have something on free will. The reality is they don't 
exactly mean by free will what sometimes people mean when they talk about it today. So let's take it step by step and start with point one in chapter nine, which is that there is what's called a natural liberty endued upon the will of man by God. And so the way it's written is God hath endued the will of man with that natural liberty that it is neither forced nor by any absolute necessity of nature determined to good or evil. So what does that mean the, the, that God has endued the will of man with natural liberty? And is that right there already making a distinction between the popular definition of free will today and what we mean by free will? Yeah. Is locating that freedom within man's nature. And then there's a question that has to be immediately asked. If man is endowed with natural liberty, then if we want to say that man's will is free, there are really there's really a two-sided question that we should answer, which is negatively free from what, and then positively free for what. I think a lot of arguments about free will often um, indulge in a bit of fuzziness at just this point. Uh, if we're going to say that we're free, then it's incumbent upon us to say from what exactly we are free. And so the confession is very clear. Um, when it says free, it means that it's neither forced nor by any absolute necessity of nature uh, determined to good or evil. And so what we're saying is that with regard to moral decisions that humans make, we can't point to some other natural causal principle and say, this made me do you know, X. And I think that's the point. It's not that sometimes nature doesn't coerce or force us. Um, you know, we can think of it in terms of natural laws that operate on us. Think of the will as a created power that man is equipped with that enables him to enact certain actions or to intentionally refrain from other actions. And it's a, it's a power that is an aspect of his nature that allows him to choose to do or refrain from. But it doesn't mean that we're able to choose or refrain from everything that might occur in our lives as humans. So for instance, if I'm, if I'm driving in my car and the guy next to me has a, a seizure and careens into the side of my car, pushes me across the double yellow line, and I hit someone coming the other direction, and I didn't want to do it. I didn't intend to do it. I really had no power over it. And the guy next to me who had the seizure may have had no power over that. Um, no court of law is going to hold me morally accountable for whatever damage was done as a result of that unfortunate action. And the reason is there were other laws of nature, physical and physiological, that supervened in such a way that the best causal explanation of my crossing the double yellow and hitting the other car are these other non-volitional causes in the world. So sometimes like my actions aren't necessarily free from other natural causes, but then what the confession is saying, but that insofar as I am morally praiseworthy or blameworthy for my actions, there is a sense in which to that extent, my actions are undertaken by me freely. So that would be the choice of if in a, in a world-loathing fit of rage, I crossed the double yellow line and smashed into the oncoming traffic, then the best causal explanation of my action is my will and not some other force in, in nature. And I think what the confession is saying is 
that man is endowed with a natural liberty free from what? Uh, sometimes and in a morally important way, free from other natural causes of my actions so that my good or my evil is not naturally determined. So, and I think at this point, most who are tracking with that would say, well, that's, that's kind of what I thought I meant by free will. But then, but then when we get into the third paragraph, it gives a little more texture to where we are right now. So paragraph two talks about the state before the fall, but then in paragraph three, it, it's post fall. And, and here's what it says. Man hath wholly lost all ability of will to do any spiritual good accompanying salvation. And that's where, generally speaking, you, you'll get some pushback. One thing I'll say before that, with regard to Confession 9.1, when it says free from other natural causes, it doesn't say free from divine providence or free from the divine decree. Um, and that's on purpose. I should say the, the, that omission is on purpose. They are very narrowly specifying it as a freedom among other potential natural causes that might seem to necessitate. But once you have the fall, confession uh, section two talks about man had freedom, the power to will, to do good, um, to do that which is well-pleasing to God. And yet he had it mutably so that he might fall from it. So man was endowed with an original righteousness, but it was a mutable righteousness. It was a righteousness that through an act of the will could be defiled and corrupted. But when you get to confession three, it's interesting. It doesn't, it doesn't sort of give a blanket statement um, just that man lost all ability to do any good whatsoever. It, it doesn't say it like that. It's very specific as to exactly what liberty of the right. will was lost. Um, and you just read it. The, he lost all ability to, of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. Um, so it doesn't mean that we that we don't have uh, the power by our will to still enact, you know, as they say in philosophy, causal chains. I can still choose to fast and skip lunch, have the roast beef, have the pizza, eat a salad, and there's a certain there's a certain liberty of my will, even post fall, that remains in which I have a freedom from other natural causes of my action to undertake certain certain actions. That's not what the confession is denying to us. And even this is where it gets difficult. Well, what about certain kinds of moral good? So for instance, um, what about an unbelieving good Samaritan, someone who sees a fellow human in need and even to his own hurt and sacrifice goes out of his way to tend to the needs of that individual? Do we not, do we not find that action praiseworthy? Do we not even commend uh, that unbelieving good Samaritan. Um, I do this if my if my unbelieving neighbors do me a good turn. Um, I say thank you, and I and I tell others about their virtue in that respect. And so the question is, how could that possibly be? How could there be good actions, even what we might call morally good actions, for which we give them praise um, on a kind of human level, if they're, you know, as it says, if they've lost all ability. Of will and and the answer is it's not spiritual good. We would say that was good. We would say that was virtuous, but it's not a spiritual good accompanying salvation, or as it's qualified later on, uh, converting oneself or preparing himself thereunto. 
so we can ask the question like, well, what is it about that kind of unbelieving good Samaritan moral virtue that we find admirable and even admire? And yet we still deny that it's a spiritual good accompanying salvation. I think, I think what underlies that is that all those goods are undertaken, but they don't, they don't ultimately have the glory of God as their telos. They are not goods that are ordered toward the right and highest end. That doesn't deny the fact that kind of in the immediacy, there's genuine moral good, but it's not good that is ultimately Godward in the heart of the one who's doing the good. Would you say that's what you're talking no, about? I, I, I think I no, I think that's exactly right. And what I find interesting is the gap between paragraph two and paragraph three. In and what I mean by that is this: it 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 identifies the fact that we can't do spiritual good accompanying salvation in, in our natural state. But like you said, it doesn't speak to the notion of someone doing something good, although it's not Godward in action, as you say. Um, but and it also doesn't speak to the notion of someone being under bondage of sin such that you know we have all these categories of of uh, addictions that that compromise our will at least that's how we think about it and that category isn't here um, right. that category now now it doesn't mean it doesn't mean they didn't envision it but it's not in this particular treatment there's an interesting um i seem to recall martin luther making a distinction uh, in terms of kinds of righteousness between the righteousness that is really Godward and that puts us in good standing with him. That's not a righteousness that we have of ourselves. The confession says that we're not able by our own strength to convert ourselves or even prepare ourselves for salvation. Um, and yet, and yet, and Luther very famously wrote his book, The Bondage of the Will, in which he gives a very, a very long elaboration of exactly wherein this moral and spiritual weakness lies. And yet Luther um, also, as I recall, affirms things like civic righteousness, which yeah, is kind of yeah. the um, what we might just call good neighborliness um, that is morally commendable. But his but he makes a distinction between that kind of righteousness, which, by the way, is desirable, certainly, um, and the righteousness that is fundamentally and at its heart. Godward in subjection to God, seeking God as our highest end and his glory. He makes that distinction and he doesn't refuse to call civic righteousness good or righteousness, but he really relativizes it down to a kind of a, a horizontal level, which I think, which I think is kind of what the confession is intending to sort of leave aside. It's not making a comment on every moral virtue or vice that every person post fall might exhibit or lack. Um, it's really focused on the spiritual good. Well, I, I agree. And, and and in paragraph five, it calls this the the will to good alone. So that a kind of admixture of, of sin and sinful motivation that would always accompany those kinds of things, civic righteousness. But I, I in one sense, because it doesn't deal with the um, the idea of being enslaved to sin to such a degree that you don't speak of it as your will anymore. Um there's no category there. It's very expansive with respect to to natural uh, natural freedom. Yeah, natural liberty. Yeah, I agree, and the, and it doesn't see an abolition of the will. It doesn't. Right. It it doesn't put man under an absolute natural necessitation. So, in his nature, uh, perverted as it is by the fall, 
the natural man is not spiritual and he can, and, and, you know, Romans eight is clear on this. Uh, he cannot please God. And that's where the confession is being very specific. That's what they're saying. They're not saying though, that he can do nothing that we would call good ever whatsoever. In other words, it's, right. it's, it's very qualified in that. Um, what kind of good exactly man is rendered unable to do? I was going to save that last one uh, in, in, in section five, because there's an interesting question. Does freedom require that I have a sort of indifferent, deliberative openness to good or evil? In other words, to be really free, do I have to be able to sin? And uh, we, we talk about the regenerate state as or that, you know, we talk about the pre-fall state as Adam, who is able to sin and able not to sin. Uh, and then we talk about the fallen state pre-regeneration as not able not to sin, which is to say, even our, even our civic righteousness is what the Puritans would call splendid sins. And they're splendid sins because while they are sort of civic and neighborly goods, they're not Godward goods. And the, so therefore there is that still that, that moral cloud that hangs over even those good deeds. Um, but then we say as regenerate that we are, again, able not to sin and also able to sin. And then in the eternal state, we are not able to sin. Right. And, that's, and that's that kind of final, we finally right. get to the place where sinning, sinning isn't even an open possibility. And I think some have the notion that then in the eternal state, there must be no freedom. There must be no right. liberty. Or no free will. Or no free will. And yet the confession, interestingly, really fights that notion when it says the will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to good alone. And as soon as you say to good alone, in a lot of people's minds, that sounds like not really free. Right. Um, but I think what we have to say is that freedom, freedom does not necessarily mean, I'll say it in an eggheaded way, contracausal openness. That is to say, always open to good or evil, but that freedom, freedom really means that which is uninhibited in seeking what it desires. And our desires will be so immutably set upon the summum bonum, the highest good, and so unshakably set upon the highest good that while we will love him liberally and freely, it won't be the freedom of deliberative openness. It will be the freedom of desires good alone and does good alone. And that that also is worthy of the name freedom or liberty of will. Well, and I think that's one of the central insights that we have to derive from this, that there is some, in a sense, there's a more interesting discussion than mm. the discussion about free will, which has to do with desiring the good. And, and what paragraph five speaks of is a situation in which our desires will be fully oriented toward the good alone and will be free to, 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 uh, to uh, uh, pursue the good alone, and 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 that that I think is also a helpful distinction because I think sometimes free will gets conflated with this notion of um, of of desire and of of being able to carry out every desire, and 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 the reality is what what we need transformed is not just our will, but our whole um, our affections. That's right. We need we need better desires, and we need the, and we need desires that aren't open toward that which is bad for us. Uh, right. And so, when when our desires are set on the good and on the good alone, there's a certain sense in which our wills are never more free 
than when we are immutably free to good alone. If we think that the most free means the most open to the most possible outcomes, I think we're I think we're mistaking what real freedom is. Real freedom is the removal of inhibitions to achieve that which one desires. And the best freedom is when the desires are solely and only good. And that is only for us in the eternal is in the is in the eternal state. Yeah, that's that's right. And so there's a whole vision here of what the telos of man is, what the mm. what the end goal of man is, and also I think a vision of what man is even now that enables us to have a civil society with uh, penalties and expectations and laws associated with it uh, because of 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 the nature of of human beings. Yeah, and I think the confession is not, it's not suppressing the truth of nature um, here. In fact, I think right. that's what's so beautiful about it is that Reformed theology affirms the truth and the good of nature, even the good of the liberty of the will in, in the believer and the unbeliever, even though it's spiritually truncated uh, in the unbeliever before regeneration. Well, we have to leave it there because of time, but James, as always, Great to talk with you. We want to give uh, our listeners the opportunity to win a copy of a book that we've both found helpful. It's a little book uh, by Charles Hodge called The Way of Life, published by our friends at Banner of Truth, a little beautiful little hardcover book that gives kind of an overview of of Christian uh, beliefs, not just on the nature of man and free will, but the nature of salvation as a whole. Uh, and so if you'd like to, you can go to the, we can go to placefortruth.org, click on the theology on the go link, and there'll be a chance for you to enter your information and, and win a copy of this book there. Uh, if you're able to donate to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, you can do that at alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. There's a donate button on both of those sites. And if you know someone who might be helped by this episode or the podcast in general, please pass it along. If you're downloading this from Apple Podcasts, you can rate uh, this podcast. That helps us get the word out. And as always, we want to thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals is thankful for your partnership. The Alliance is a working coalition of men and women from diverse backgrounds who share a common passion for the truth of God's Word, upholding biblical doctrine, sharing the gospel, and equipping Christians with trustworthy Bible teaching through broadcasts, publishing, and events. The message we proclaim is one of ultimate hope, which originates not in man, but in what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And it's your generous gifts that enable this good work. As we approach the year's end, we need your help to raise the funds necessary to finish the year strong and reach even more people in the year ahead. So please join us and help underwrite this encouraging Bible teaching ministry. Visit AllianceNet.org donate to make a donation online. That's AllianceNet.org donate or call 1-800-488-1888.